views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you stars our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanan Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is September 16th. 2015. We have a special program tonight featuring two incredible, active, and powerful voices from guests who also happen to be new abolitionists. Muhaddin Dibaha will be on shortly. He is a lead organizer in the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Black Lives Matter movement and also an organization that he's formed as well, a social activist and an abolitionist. He's on the ground and on location across America's rebellious hot spots. He'll be featured in an upcoming PBS documentary, which tapes this weekend in Charleston. Muaddin and I have had some incredibly memorable experiences together over the past year, and tonight he shares his insights with us and with you. 9 p.m. tonight, our second guest will be Christopher Irvin, abolitionist, social activist, human rights advocate, and a lobbyist on behalf of post-sentence prisoners' rights and a civil, uh, a city council candidate in Baltimore, Maryland. We've uh, got a lot of big stories on our list, and if time allows, we'll try and squeeze them in. So be sure to follow us in real time on our Facebook page at Facebook slash New Abolitionists Radio for links to the articles we'll be discussing. Here's a few questions. What state did not even bother to ratify the flawed 13th Amendment until 2013? What state's longest running commissioner of prisons is in prison himself for using the entire state's correction system as his own personal moneymaker. What state has had federal judges call their juvenile detention centers cesspools of unconstitutional violations? And what state literally had chattel slaves who didn't know slavery had ended up to 2010? The answer is Mississippi. The research on Mississippi is going to give me nightmares for life. Tonight, we show you that Mississippi is Ferguson. This week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is 34-year-old Jarrett Adams. After a rape conviction in Wisconsin at 17, with help from the Wisconsin Innocence Project, Adams was exonerated after 10 years in prison. Our abolitionist in profile is Anna Murray uh, Murray Douglas, 1813-1882, who is best known as the first wife of black abolitionist 
Frederick Douglass. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. You can find archived podcasts at newabolitionistradio.blogspot.com. And no, I don't have a lisp. I'm just expressing that there's an S at the end of abolitionists. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1-641-715-3660. The extension code is 549-032-POUND. Press star 601 to queue up from the conference line. Once more, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Is Johanan with us now? Um, No. <clears throat> Excuse me. No, I haven't heard from Brother Johanan. How's your week been, man? I know you've been busy. Oh, yeah. I've been real busy, man, making some upgrades to Black Talk Radio Network, something I had actually been working on for a number of years and off and on and just trying, well, not years, but over a year. Uh, hacking code trying to allow us to start doing our own podcasting and i finally uh was able to um increase uh the upload limit for uh wordpress because that's what we use for our content management system and so that allow us to start um hosting podcasts on our own website instead of having to use you know a third party website and then import it into uh the platform so i'm real excited about that man and uh, that's where my focus uh, has been the past couple of days. That's awesome, man. Uh, you remind me of something that I've been really trying to keep at the front of my mind for these past this past week or so is that things get better over time. As long as you keep going and keep at it, you keep building better and better, and it gets better. It just does, man. Like Black Talk Radio Network has just grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, wonderful report that you put out recently, very professionally done. So anybody wants to know, you know, how many nations we're reaching and how many people we're reaching, how many downloads are going on, you'll see that the world is listening to New Abolitionist Radio. So that's pretty awesome, man. It grows. As long as you keep committed to something. And we are committed to ending slavery in the United uh, States of America. That's for sure. We're committed to getting that 13th Amendment corrected and that exception taken out. And we're committed to seeing freedom for the millions whose lives are being lost and incarcerated for profit. No doubt, no doubt. Um, yeah, I'm definitely committed. I done poured eight years of my life into Black Talk Radio Network and the Black Talk Media Project. And it was during, I think, maybe my second or third year with it in existence. I'm, I'm not sure. It might have been four years where the light bulb went off in my mind when I read the 13th Amendment. Never had even thought about reading it, but for some reason I was reading and I was like, man, let me look up the 13th Amendment, right? Because they, you know, cause it, it, of course it has something to do with, with slavery. So I just, sometimes I just get something in my head and I look it up, you know? And so I looked up the 13th Amendment and I was like, man, let me read this again. I know I just didn't read what I just read. And I saw that big old exception clause and I was shouting from the rooftops, so to speak, you know, to everyone who would listen that slavery had never been abolished. I mean, it was like it was like I was a, a old timer, a, a gold prospector, and I had discovered, you know, a vein of gold or something like that, you know, and, and finding that information was just that dramatic to me, man. I was like, man. And so, you know, I, I don't remember it exactly, but I started reaching out for uh, to people who also believe that slavery was never abolished so that we can create this program. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, I reached out to you. 
Uh, then we brought on uh, Sister Legacy, who was no longer uh, with us. Legacy Leonard, she passed yeah. away, unfortunately. Um, we had Erica X on as as an abolitionist host. That didn't work out. And, and then, you know, Johanny came aboard. So, yeah, it's been a long uh, road, man. And I do have to say, I think that we, over the years, have done um, a whole lot in terms in informing the public that slavery was never abolished and there needs to be a new abolitionist movement. And again, you know, we know that there are people who came before us like Angela Davidson and, and others, you know, bro brother Robert Robertson and Lee Wood and and I forget Miss Espinosa's uh, first name because uh, they put out a book called Prison Slavery back in the 70s and, and it cites the 13th Amendment. And, right. and, and so, you know, Caps was here way before us uh, and saying the same things that we're saying. Right. Caps was. So they laid a hell of a groundwork for us. Yes. Yes. And, and, and so we just we just built on, you know, what we learned from them. And we just been, you know, doing what we do ever since. Right. Right. And, you know, the thing is, we're really not much different. We all want the same things. We're all working towards the same goals. When we, you and I started this together, I had just come off the uh, March 4th for Freedom campaign where we organized nationally for people to go to uh, prisons and jailhouses and protest there directly. Um, and it was pretty successful. I think we got about 40,000 people involved na uh, internationally. And uh, we had just come off of that in 2010. And I heard Angela Davis in a speech say, we need a 21st century abolitionist movement. And, you know, I'm a solution oriented person. And I was like, you know what? She's right. But we also need an underground railroad. And not long after that, you called me. <laughs> and uh, we've been going at it ever since, man. It's wonderful memories. Some of the things that I've learned, I got to admit, Scotty, I wish I never knew. There's a couple of things I wish I never knew. Like tonight, some of the things I found out about Mississippi. But uh, here I am, and I'm a receptacle well, for this information, passing it around. Yeah, and I've heard the, <clears throat> excuse me, the saying that once you know something, you become responsible for what you know. Yep. And when I knew that slavery was never um, abolished, I just could not sit on the sidelines and not do something. You know, I'm not a Harriet Tubman. I'm not breaking into prisons and, and juvenile detention facilities and, and leading, you know, the captives on, on, you know, a perilous journey to freedom. But I'm doing what I can. That's with all what I you have. can do, man. Yeah. That's all anybody's ever required to do is what you can. It's when you don't do anything. That's the problem. That is the problem because you're not even doing what you can. You're doing what you won't. I mean, you won't do anything there. And we see that a lot. I think it's people on a bandwagon trip. They're like, you know, they just don't want to until more people get involved. When you got two or three more million people, come talk to us. Until then, eh. Yeah. Uh, I hope Johannes all, all right. It's not like him to miss a program, so I'm just you know got him on my mind wondering what's up but uh yeah uh what time are we due to have our guests come in i, I told him to give us a call in at 8 15 oh uh, 8 15 i'm sorry because i'm thinking black talk radio news I always tell him to call in at 4 10 and i'm looking at the clock and i'm like oh okay yeah i'm on new abolitionist radio <laughs> right right and you know i'm looking forward to this conversation uh he and i have had some serious experiences together if you remember the video of the brother that was literally kidnapped from our party 
at on the Fourth of July event under the Confederate flag in Columbia, South Carolina, where we did the burn and bury with John Sims, our right. former guest of the Confederate flags, and one of our people was kidnapped and snatched and taken down uh, into the basement right in front of our eyes, and we got it all on video. That was this brother that went through and stood in front of these cops and said, "We are going to burn white supremacy down." <laughs> In his face. It was a beautiful thing to see, and it was all on video that went globally viral. Uh, a pretty awesome experience that we shared there. And we dealt with that racism on the 4th of July, right after all of these spokespeople stood on those very same steps talking that unity trash, right? Mm-hmm. And, and as soon as this happened to us, suddenly there was nobody there to be seen. Nobody really acted like they cared. Very few uh, remained around to see what was happening or to offer any help. Uh, one of those is a former uh, congressional candidate by the name of Dimitri. I really appreciate him out of Charleston. He's really been pushing the issue of abolition. But yeah, we had that experience. We've been together in two or three different uh, abolitionism workshops. Mm-hmm. And in Columbia, when we had the city town hall meeting and the black uh, female prosecutor, such a rare thing in this nation, you know what I mean? was there and we had a discussion with her at the town hall meeting about what they were doing. If you remember, we spoke about that on right, the air. Right, He's right. been around all of that. And then now recently he organized the event in Charleston or helped organize the event in Charleston's days of grace where he gave all of these workshops, which we were a part of. So this brother is definitely an abolitionist, well-versed in what's going on. Uh, you can't spend that much time around me and not be, <laughs> you know? <clears throat> so he's well-versed in what's going on. And I'm looking forward to how he's going to incorporate this yeah. into his upcoming uh, organizing. Yeah, speaking, speaking of incorporating things, you know, we share a lot of information on a daily basis through New Abolitionist Radio, especially you, Max. Um, and I'm talking about the Facebook page. But um, I think that we need to start incorporating uh, more participation in these conversations on the radio program with the listening audience. If you have questions, if you have comments or observations, we do want to invite you to call in and share those. But just recognize that our time is limited um, and we do have programs that come on after us on Wednesday night. So please be quick and concise with your question or uh, your comment. But we do invite y'all to uh, call in um, 641-715-3660. That's 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549-032-POUND. And um, greetings to those already dialed in that's just listening. Anytime you want to ask a question, make a comment, hit star six and one. Just remember to be quick and concise because our time is limited and we just have so much information to get to. You know, I was thinking about that recently and <clears throat> I figured that maybe in the future we could start a segment where people can send us in questions or comments and we could read one or two or three of them on air and answer them if they're questions or whatever they may be. Um, cause sometimes, you know, I've known that people listen and they don't really want to say anything, but they're just absorbing, you know? Yeah. Um, 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 Johanan was having, um, issues with his computer, but I think we got him with us now. Um, but before we move on, Max, uh, you will be coming to my home state of North Carolina, um, to go to an abolitionist workshop. And like you mentioned in a Facebook post today, it's not like you getting paid to travel around the country and, and to, you know, talk to people about uh, abolitionism, modern abolitionism. 
and whatnot. And so um, you were requesting, you know, some help with some funds to help help you uh, travel to where you need to go to this workshop. So can you tell people how they can do that and tell people, you know, what it what it is? Well, normally I don't try to reach out like this to friends, family and supporters and things like that. it's a very rare occasion. But I've been told on more than one occasion that I need to uh, let people help us sometimes. You know what I mean? Especially when we need help. So, uh, you know, we do this a lot. We run around the country on our own dime, often at our own expense, because it needs to be done, and I'm, we're able to do it. It's my wife and I as a couple. We've been doing this together for a quarter of a century. And uh, we've got several major events this month. Uh, we usually pay for a lot of these with our arts endeavors, like we're the features at the Moja Festival this year in September in Charleston, South Carolina, as far as the poets and storytellers go. My wife and I are the features, so you can check us out there. But we're also going out to Azul, which is a uh, retreat in North Carolina, all the way up in the mountains where we went last year, and we'll be giving abolitionist workshops to a gathering of other activists uh, and uh, people that just want to share information with different groups. And it was very successful last year, and this year that we've been invited to come back. Again, we're not getting paid for any of this, and, and that's just two that I mentioned. And I think the other one is we're going to D.C. on 1010 uh, to be a part of the 20th anniversary Million Man March. So we're looking for some help for us to be able to cover our travel expenses of lodging and food and gas and stuff like that. Things are tight. If you want to help, you can send a donation to PayPal at uh, prismaticdreams at gmail.com. That's P-R-Y-S-M-A-T-I-C dreams at gmail.com. And if you do send in a do donation of $10 or more, we'll send you back a free CD. Well, let me not say free. Let, we'll send you back a CD of our award-winning CD called Endgame. All right. Um, I do believe we have our guest on the line as well as Johanna. Johanna, we got you? I am here, okay. everybody. Just want to make sure your mic was right in, in yeah, everything. Uh, so greetings peace, to you, brother. Peace, brother Johanna. Uh, peace and welcome to the program, my brother Muhadin Dibaha. Um, hey, peace, brother. Peace. Here's our comrades, Johanan, uh, Eliah, and Scotty Reed. Greetings. Evening, brother. Good evening. Yeah, man, I was bragging about you. You know, uh, I really feel like you're a brother who could take what you know now and incorporate what you've been doing probably for your entire life and make some serious changes because you're not that type to sit back and let things happen. I've seen you involved in everything, including the Black Lives Matter movement uh, that branched out in Charleston. And as I mentioned earlier, organizing the Days of Grace events, working with the uh, dock workers union down there and educating them uh, and incorporating their assistance into the movements that you're involved in, man. So, yeah, I'm very proud to know you, and it has been a pleasure and an honor to be warrior, a warrior at your side on several occasions. Much, much, much blessing, big brother. Appreciate the awakening um, to understanding the storyline. Uh, each time we get to, to have another jewel that adds to to the to the storehouse of jewels that we get to to reveal um, within this work. You know, uh, we just we just become more powerful for it, and the movement becomes more powerful for it, and the truth shines a lot brighter for it. Word, man. Would you? Why don't you tell us a little about who you are, uh, the man behind the stories, if you if you don't mind, and uh, what it is you're working on right now, and some of the plans for the future, and 
Also, if you get the opportunity, you made a wonderful suggestion earlier today when you were saying that tomorrow is the uh, September 17th is the 228th anniversary of the signing of the U.S. Constitution. And uh, we celebrate that tomorrow on Constitution Day. And maybe we should get together and do something constructive for that day to bring awareness to the 13th Amendment. Yeah, I, that's a great idea, brother. Uh, point out the fact that the debate that they was having around the Constitution, whether or not to abolish slavery during that time, that, hey, that debate still ain't over and we still ain't abolished slavery. Truth be told, truth be told, in my journeys uh, as as a first of, of, a, of a black man and then moving into an African and even deeper into a Gullah Geechee, uh, my experience has been that the deeper my history can go into the reality of how the laws, the constructs, and the threat of violence and the savagery of white supremacy has impacted my mindset and how I move in this world. And so as I uh, understand exactly how the laws, practices, policies, and procedures have been laid out to create systems of inequity that seem justified and enforced by law upon me and my people to a degree that's different than um, European descent, when I live in that reality, like there's a sense of justice that never got turned off. And I, and I definitely give thanks and praise to to my Baha'i faith, to my, my dad's Islamic faith, to the, my grandparents' Pentecostal faith, and my other grandparents' Jehovah's Witness faith for, for allowing me to understand that, you know, when, when your sense of justice is turned all the way up, you got a lot of work to do. But when you allow that sense of justice to be turned down just enough that you are self-preserving, that you are protecting your reputation, that you're not able to speak the truth to the power, that you're able to tell children that that's just the way it is or that's the way it's always going to be, when we continue to do stuff like that, we're, we're stealing their sense of justice. We're stealing their humanity. And that's happened on both sides in this white supremacy game. We have European brothers and sisters that have been assimilated into a whiteness that allows them to stand while prejudice is in their presence. We have blackness that has been assimilated into white supremacy that stands silent and takes that oppression. And so we have a sense of justice that is underdeveloped. And I would say that within the Black Lives Matter movement, one of the things that we're doing as we gain our maturity is understanding that that sense of justice has to go far beyond understanding the constructs that we're given to operate in the, the constructs of thinking about police brutality without thinking about the constructs that actually created the police to begin with in our in our in our surroundings the context of why those police were there and who hired them the capitalists that that started this whole experiment of of uh, American slavery you know the, we the police have always done their bidding and so they this is not a new thing, and it's an old story, and it's such an old story that when we don't tell it all the way from the time before we got to these shores, then we miss out on important knowledge like the 13th Amendment. Absolutely, brother. A absolutely. And uh, you mentioned the history. Like, you know, understanding the history gives you a better perspective of everything, particularly the history of why we have these police 
the way we do right now. We were just talking on our last broadcast about how, uh, well, we were talking about it, Scotty Reed and I were talking about it on one of his broadcasts, about how these police net have uh, quotas, for instance, in New York and, and very likely in Charleston as well and all across America. And if you keep hiring these police to fill these quotas, it's just going to show that you need more police and they're just going to keep arresting people to fill those quotas whether there is a crime committed or not and when they run out of crimes they're going to have their lawmakers make more crimes so they don't lose their jobs and it just keeps spreading more and more to criminalize an entire people the southern police in particular in charleston still wear a badge that shows exactly how far back their origins go as slave catchers this is the truth. We had um, Andy Savage, who's a lawyer for uh, Michael Slager. As a part of Michael Slager's defense, Michael Slager told that the reason he, he stopped Walter Scott was because he had to fulfill a, a quota of three stops. And then he tried to shirk his, his responsibility onto the mayor and the police chief. In doing that, they're starting to tell on each other. And if we're getting to this point, that means we got a leverage and we have a, a truth force to actually uh, bring bring the story to light of exactly what policies, practices, and procedures are actually retaining this system of, of white supremacy and, and slavery. I'm particularly interested in naming those practices and procedures and then being able to uh, abolish them and being able to keep track of how a policy that's enacted, uh, such as the policies of the war on drugs, you know, had an impact almost immediately. We have the ability to aggregate big data sets right now to see those trends lines before they actually impact our community in, in detrimental ways. And so I'm definitely in a solution mindset. I, I do think that we all have a sense of, of, of how they're moving, but I'm not sure if we have a sense of uh, what to do to dismantle the way that they're moving. Well, I know you've uh, helped put together proposals of reform uh, and presented them uh, at least successfully on one occasion and unsuccessfully on one other occasion uh, to, to Charleston, uh, I guess, would be the mayor's office? Yeah, the mayor and then the public safety committee, yep. And the public safety committee, uh, looking for change, changes then. I remember you reaching out to me uh, with some advice of what uh, I would like to add to that conversation. And of course, that was how we really got into the abolitionist conversation to begin with. But um, what was the, how does that, the reforms that you proposed to them, have they incorporated those now, particularly including the uh, Citizens Review Board? No, uh, of course not. Uh, the reforms that we, we are asking for are structural reforms. And so when you talk about structural reforms, you're talking about changing power dynamics. And people uh, in power are not interested in changing power dynamics. So a citizen review board that has investigatory powers, that has subpoena powers, that would allow the community to actually have oversight with teeth to pull officers, pull their cards anytime that they're messing around in our community and doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Okay. It allows us to actually impact the training and the policies of how they deploy their weaponry, when they deploy it, allows us to create policies that affect the advancement, how they advance, when they get demoted, why they get demoted, and where the community's voice is and actually identifying what policing policies would actually work in a particular community. But we're moving into a whole nother like realm as we're learning and we're growing because that was reform. 
and we need to get and adopt the language of abolishment. And so we're moving towards abolishing the, the, the right of an officer to carry lethal weaponry. We're looking towards the, the, to the point of abolishing police from our neighborhoods and actually developing the capacity to meet the, the mental health needs of our own community to meet the, uh, because well, that's where we look at, uh, addiction. We look at it as a mental health need because those are our family members. We don't, we're not walking around thinking that we're living next to criminals. And anytime that we adopt that language, you know, we're, we're practicing white supremacy. So we're not talking about black and black crime. We're talking about brothers and sisters that are, that are, that are dealing with something internally that need some love and need some support and need us to rally around them, develop some economic independence. So, you know, we can eat however we need to eat. That's, that's not going to be stepping on each other's toes. And so the, the discourse uh, that, that we're kind of moving into is away from the whole reform ideology. We understand that there's already been a movement for civil equality and, and to be able to sit down and to have these reforms. The 13th Amendment was a reform of slavery. I mean, we're done with these reforms. Let's get into this abolition. Well, you know, I firmly believe, and I know you do too, that if we had the budget that is provided for cities like Baltimore or Charleston or even Columbia or L.A., God forbid you get the budget provided for the Department of Justice or for the police in L.A., we would be able to police our own communities and enrich our own communities and do so much more productive for ourselves. For What's being done right now to us? Because what's being done right now to us is a genocide. And they keep proposing to us that it's for our own benefit. You know, I had um, done some interviews over the year with the people over at Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, which is led by a former police um, a Maryland state trooper, as well as Baltimore uh, police officer Neil Franklin, who this man broke down in tears when he was in a panel talking about mass incarceration, a.k.a. modern slavery and saying what he had done to his people. But, you know, from that organization, I can't remember what what um, individual it was from that organization. But he said the problem is, is that we got policing when we need police peace officers you know peace officers come to the community to help keep the peace not to police the community and it's a big difference in, in what a peace officer does and what a a neo slave catcher as i call them uh does in our communities so yeah they 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 need to be pushed out well i tell Most you what, definitely. what we got to do real quick is we're going to take a quick station identification break just a couple seconds long and we'll be right back with muhadeen Scotty Reed, Johanna and Elia, Max Parthas here on New Abolitionist Radio. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back. Told you it was only going to be a few seconds. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in today. Our special guest, Brother Muadin. Do I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah, Muhyiddin. It's Muhyiddin uh, Dabaha. Muhyiddin is from the Islamic tradition, means a re reviver of the light, bringer back of the truth. Dabaha is from the Baha'i faith tradition. Uh, the Baha just means of glory, uh, Dabaha. Um, one of the pieces that we were just about to get into um, that I was feeling right before our second break, which, you know, does interrupt things as it is a break, but it's all good. Um, the, the feeling of a capitalist that has always 
had a price tag on its chattel, that capitalist is never going to not see a price tag on their chattel just because the laws change, just because their relationships change. That capitalist is always going to try to make the most money. And so whether that is revenue generating, whether that is convict leasing systems, whether that is for-profit prisons, like they'll, they'll always figure out a scheme to make money off of their chattel. Because of that, when I'm thinking about policing, there's not a real relationship to safety. That, that some reason we've been sold the need for police to keep ourselves safe from what? From each other? And if, and if that's the case, then why aren't there police in uh, white communities? Like, don't they need a police there to make sure they're safe? And so this idea of safety, I feel, has really infected us um, and made us scared of each other and, and made us feel criminalized uh, by each other. And, and now it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it's only for the impact of actually getting revenue generated for the capitalists that still have a tag on their chattel slaves. Now that tag is, they would need it. of course, it's a social security number, but that's a prison tag. That's a number. That's a probation number now. That tag is there. I know exactly where my chattel slave is at all times, and I'm going to go round him up and see what he's doing, check up on him, see who he's hanging out with, keep him in this certain area, keep him out of that certain area, and that kind of surveillance and that kind of behavior. In, the, in that understanding, I think our, our analysis will really start to reveal just how it's always been an economic, it's been tied to an economic venture. And so white supremacy is an economic venture. It's not, it's not racism. It's an economic venture. Slavery was an economic venture. It wasn't racism. Right, right. And the racism was an illusion crafted specifically to justify enslaving Africans and committing genocide upon Native Americans. Clearly. So how do we... And so how do we get ourselves out of that? Again, uh, there's one thing about this, the millennial generation and the push that we're doing and, and how we're doing it. We grew up in a different time frame. And, and so the relationships and the perspectives that we've taken in through the Internet, we've taken in like perspectives from all around the world in a way that somebody would have to either be well-read or well-traveled in the generation before. And so there's a bunch of us around that are kind of reading this from like a global perspective and being like, dang, look at this transatlantic slave trade that made all of this industry possible, which made these multinational corporations possible, which made all of this capital in the IMF to go back. And you know what I'm saying? It's like, like it's, it's an, it's an economic hustle. And so when we're like, when we're polarized by this race talk and this racism talk and that, this, that, or the other, when that's not, tied to economic talk and economic speak, I feel like we, we just get off like blowing air. And, and I'm hoping that, that we don't give into that. Um, and I'm, I'm feeling in this generation, like we're not really feeling that. We're feeling an unapologetically African and black movement, but we're not really feeling the whole, this blackness, like this blackness is a tied to a, to a, to a, an international story of an economic business and that economic business is still going. And so we want to use this so-called blackness or Africanness to interrogate the systems that actually divided up our mother continent and actually get to real work of actually freeing the land and freeing the people. Man, you got some great ideas and uh, looking forward to working with you more in the future on some of the ideas, particularly the one that's coming up recently, uh, 
uh, within the next couple of days, we have an opportunity to uh, get a national audience for some of the ideas being presented here, some of the facts that we speak about, some of the objectives that we really look towards as uh, people of color in this nation. And that's the PBS broadcasting that there'll be a PBS taping they'll be doing uh, for Life After Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina this weekend, right? That is right. Tomorrow we're actually doing a mayoral candidate forum called the Racial Equity Forum, which will be putting all these candidates on blast for how there could be a 40-year mayor here and all this racial inequality. But Saturday, um, the taping is going to be in Charleston at Circular Church. I think it's going to start uh, around 12, and so we want to get there early, around 11.15. If you're interested, get tickets online at Eventbrite, and then uh, it's going to air on the 21st. Part of that conversation desperately needs to include abolition. It desperately needs to, to uplift the language of, of exactly the workings of white supremacy and, and how we're going to dismantle those, right? Because we need to start shutting down the systems that replicate it. And, and, and unfortunately, the burden of proof is on us. And so that's going to take our work to start to identify how to, to aggregate the, the big data sets that right now only the Department of Justice really have access to um, that kind of aggregation tool, but all of it is public available information. And so we desperately need individuals that have uh, data analytic skills, that have access to big servers and big memory space to help us aggregate all this data of how certain uh, judges um, make certain kind of stipulations to, to lock up brothers, how certain judges uh, have people lined up for plea deals instead of allowing them to have jury trials, to start to see like all of this disproportion and then connect it to the brutality, to connect it to the complaints in different communities so we can tell our whole story backed up by numbers. That's what's desperately needed right now for the abolition movement and for the Black Lives Matter movement. So that's where our synergy is. Our synergy is going to be around actually looking at the same data set and being like, damn, that's white supremacy right there. Let's spell this out all day and start cutting cutting the system down. You know, we shared a story. Um, I think that was last week's program where it may not have been on this program, but on our new abolitionist um radio facebook page but in in other facebook pages we were uh pushing this story about this black judge was that in mississippi guys and and i know we'll be talking about mississippi later but um there was a black judge a district court judge in mississippi who turned his court into a drug court instead of sending people off into 21st century you know slavery he was deferring them to get treatment and so the white people that worked in that courthouse stopped scheduling you know cases on his docket and then you know they work to get him thrown out falling filing bogus complaints on him and eventually the mississippi supreme court uh kicked him out i guess they you know uh, uh stripped him of his judgeship however that works but i mean that's clear evidence right right there about what you were just talking about and the purpose that they were doing that again is revenue generation. That makes money for the state. And as long as we keep that focus of, of how they're using their chattel slaves to, to get them money, uh, especially when you think about the federal dollars that are going to it, that's all that's taxed. We're, we're, we, we are paying to imprison our brothers and sisters. Like, we need to have some kind of tax movement where we stop paying taxes uh, and we start divesting 
from this, these, these kinds of practices, but we have to be able to label those practices and those storylines like you were just telling uh, about the judge in Mississippi. Yeah, Johanna just uh, shared the story that was um, Ricky Thompson was is the judge's or the former judge, I should say right. now, uh, Ricky Thompson. Yeah. Former judge. There, there was two things that you did mention, uh, brother, and I, I would like to add to. One, when you said we need these uh, different types of research to be made available through the abolitionist movement, we have begun that process, and much of that information uh, for research use on just about everything you can imagine is available at thenewwordorder.com. If you just go to thenewwordorder.com, that is what we call the North Star, and the North Star has as much information as we have been able to gather together over the past few months, and it's constantly growing. Anything you could possibly imagine from some of the best minds in the land. Uh, also, you pointed out a fallacy that's being used against us, which is burden of proof reversal, and <laughs> that's one of the top ten commandments of logic. Thou shalt not lay the burden of proof unto him that is questioning the claim. See, we're questioning the claim and the veracity of abolition, whether or not it was actually done. And if it wasn't done, then we're right. If you didn't abolish slavery and you're still practicing it, we're right. That means we need to abolish it, right? So right we're reacting to a falsehood in a way when we're trying to prove, put the burden of proof on ourselves rather than continuing with our claim right on i definitely dig that um i was speaking probably more so in the in the court of public opinion um the burden of proof is is on the africans to figure out their way out of this because ain't no european about this just you know that's not within that's not within their setup you know that they're not going to do that that's what i mean by that's a fallacy. It's a reversal that's being put on us, and it's like crabs in the barrel now. We keep trying to prove a claim that everybody already knows is true, and as long as we keep trying to prove it, then it's a perpetual uh, catch-22. We're just going to keep trying to prove it until who believes it? You know, when, like when I walk into some spots, have you seen I talk with authority. I know exactly what I'm talking about, and I prefer not to talk about things I don't know anything about. And I know that slavery never ended. So I come and I tell people, this is how it is, not let's debate it. That's done with me. You know, I know what's going on. So we need to get some of these politicians, uh, some of these leaders that are out there really sharing good information, like Michelle Alexander and uh, Tanisha Coates who are really out on the front line sharing good information but are not saying anything. Even a, a darling of the Black Lives Matter movement, Cornel West, are not saying anything about slavery existing right now. And that is right on. very damaging to the cause because you're just in denial now and you're one of us. Right on, right on. I think that's been a, that's been a part of our resistance and what we've been actually facing, even locally, uh, when we're talking about disarming the police. There's a, there's so many Africans that are wedded to police walking around their community with guns because they now that makes them feel safe. And so when I when I when I'm addressing like the court of public opinion, I'm trying to meet people where they're at. And there's so many folks that aren't even going to let themselves believe slavery exists until we present an argument that's going to be able to allow them to do that. And so when I say an argument, until we kind of dismantle the justifications they have for people going to jail, the justifications of why criminals should be 
regarded as people that don't have a voice and shouldn't vote and whatnot. Like these are laws that that are not just in place because somebody wrote them in place. These are laws in place because there's a whole lot of people that that know it's wrong and that are continuing to be silent. And I think like that is that's the piece that even if we have the most data and the most facts and we have truth on our side, like if if that truth is not organized, this is something Minister Farrakhan thing uh, says says a lot. He says uh, uh, an organized lie will always defeat a disorganized truth. And I think that that's what I'm, I'm really trying to express is that right. we have a lot of truth value on our side, but it's it's not organized into a power yet. And once everybody feels that power and and the society feels the power of the truth, then then it's then it's like the presence of truth will will speak for itself. Right, right, right. You just got to stand on truth. Uh, we're we're almost done with this uh, segment. And I don't want to let you go without finding out what's coming up uh, in addition to what we spoke of with PBS. But other things that you need help in that you can speak to our listeners on about uh, and let them know what's coming up so they can assist in it. Uh, definitely want to give you as much assistance as we can. So what's in the future right now for you and for the organization and where do you need assistance? Most definitely, most definitely. And so I guess we'll start nationally. JoinCampaignZero.org. JoinCampaignZero.org. That's kind of like the coalition or the, the collective intelligence of the policy movements that we've been pushing in different locales. That's kind of our best practices. We need folks to look at those and start adopting them locally. Look at which pieces you don't have in your police force locally and, and start finding champions uh, that can push those forward. And so we wanted to keep it a, a grassroots kind of local movement while we dialogue with the presidential candidates and, and try to get them to put it on their platforms nationally. On a more state level, um, we desperately need help in getting Nikki Haley uh, to, to understand that Black Lives Matter is a movement that could actually help the state of South Carolina. We want to do some reverse psychology down here in South Carolina in particular because the Confederate flag coming down, the experiences of white supremacy have kind of primed uh, an experience of white uh, examination that has never happened an experience of uh, black inferiority or black respectability that hasn't really happened at this pitch before. And so um, if you can get involved and start start offering commentary on that, that's more on a social media front, and that could really impact people. On a local level, we actually have eight uh, city council candidates in North Charleston, and we've chosen our, our mayor pick and John Singletary and, and North Charleston. We need people that are willing to back this brother. He's backing us. We need people that are willing to look at the North Charleston Civil Coalition for Reform. That's an organization that we've gathered together to back our policy reforms to make sure that they get through after we get our guy in. And so we desperately need help getting out the vote. And so if anybody, again, uh, if you're, if you're trans local, um, social media, get into Charleston, you know, people that live around here, tell them to get out and vote, tell them about John Singletary, tell them, tell them about the North Charleston Civil Coalition for Reform and Black Lives Matter Charleston. Lastly, we really want to encourage folks to start filming the police as much as possible. What we found is that is the, the deepest psychological warfare that we can possibly do. In the, in the city of North Charleston, what we've done is, after Michael Slager, 
like the cops are looking around. You know, they're watching their back and looking through windows because Faden was behind a fence. And so they don't know when they're going to get caught on camera right now. And we, we want to make that camera be a presence within their psyche. And so we're asking folks all around the nation to protect each other and to hold these police officers accountable by filming them anytime you see them interacting with somebody in the community. Awesome. You're also doing uh, Black Businesses Matter, too. Uh, yes. You want to touch on that? For sure, for sure. Uh, so last Saturday we did our first uh, event where we actually got black businesses together to kind of uh, get them online uh, and and especially down here, mom and pops that, that haven't moved into the technological age. And we're going to keep on pushing that. Uh, one of the elements that's really important for us to understand is that a hashtag creates a channel of communication. And that's why the affirmation Black Lives Matter actually has taken off. If it was black power in the 70s and it had a hashtag, the world, we would have set the world on fire. The, the hashtag Black Lives Matter is an organizing principle. And so when you hashtag it, anybody that clicks on that hashtag can see everything that's organized in that hashtag and with that hashtag. That means we can create our own black business network just by hashtagging businesses, taking pictures of businesses we visit, giving ratings of businesses, and then hashtagging it Black Business Matters. Awesome. Awesome, man. I, I like your ideas. Um, yep. I also appreciate what you've been doing with the Bernie Sanders camp, too. I want to say thank you for that. I know that uh, it's mainly because of efforts uh, from you that they even have such things on their table. So thanks again for that. All power to the people. Indeed, brother. Indeed. Well, uh, we'll be seeing you again very soon. Do my brothers here have any quick questions before uh, we're done? No, I just want to say thanks also, brother, for the for the work you're doing. I mean, this is what we're looking for. This is the this is the clarion call being answered. You know, not yep. that we had to put it out for you to take action. You've been out there before we, you know, even even knew about what was going on in, in a lot of these cases that you spoke on. But you know, definitely for the listeners, this is what we're talking about. You know, get active. There's something going on where you're at, and it can profoundly affect and impact the systems that you're suffering under locally. And then influence, you know, the greater system, which is it's the way it's going to have to happen. So hats off to you, brother. Respect. Uh, if you can see my power fist raised to you right now, you know, go forward in peace and, and God's grace and safety surround you. Word. Yes. Word. Thank you for being a part of tonight's broadcast. Well, Dean, uh, I repeat, well, we appreciate what you're doing and we're going to continue to work together on this. I don't think this is going to be your last time here with us on New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, I look forward to seeing you on again. All power to the people. Peace, brother. Peace. Everything that you just heard, if it's a link provided, you can find it on New Abolitionist Radio on our Facebook page. So make sure you check out uh, the live links that we're sharing as we're discussing them, including the Campaign Zero, which is also at the top of our list of freedom fighters on the uh, North Star website. So, yes, that's all there. Uh, the Black Lives Matter Charleston group is there as well. And the PBS special that's being taped this weekend in Charleston, the link is available for you to RSVP tickets. We need abolitionists to come down there during this PBS uh, town hall taping and be a part of the conversation. Get this in the conversation. Don't let this moment slide. Take the day off from work if you need to. I'm saying, but be there, all right? So you can find all that on New Abolitionist Radio. Scotty, Johanna, anything? 
No, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Well, I, I, I was, uh, yeah, we got uh, in just about eight minutes. We still got eight minutes before we'll be joined by Brother Christopher Irvin. I'm interested in hearing about the research uh, that he did to show that shows that uh, felony disenfranchisement laws were in existence before the 13th Amendment, man. So, you know, ain't none of this stuff new. It didn't just start happening. It is it's it's very, very old, centuries old, over a century old. And and so but like the uh brother we were just speaking with was saying, it, it's important to understand the history so you can understand the dynamics of what you're dealing with today. All right. You gotta get all the variables to a problem before you can come up with proper solutions. So looking forward to speaking to Brother Christopher Irvin. I was also uh, glad that um, our uh, first guest um, broke down what Black Lives Matter, the hashtag, is about. Because a lot of people, including myself, had questions that, you know, we were asking questions, and he answered some of those questions. It's an organizing tool. All right. right. It's an organizing tool for people to organize under because we know that uh, before Ferguson, there was there were mass movements against police brutality that goes back centuries. All right. It goes back centuries. Um, and so um, they, you know, created that as an organizing tool when they joined uh, um, that continuous movement. It's a continuous movement. Again, like we say as abolitionists, we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors who were abolitionists before us and certainly, you know, um, uh, the millennials today are standing on the shoulder, shoulders of the ancestors who were out there in the streets and organizing, you know, uh, long ago. So, yeah. He I, said something that was a, a genius move that we can do tomorrow, considering tomorrow's Constitution Day. And I was thinking maybe you could relaunch the petition that we re we've launched several times now to remove the 13th Amendment exception clause from the federal constitution and uh, launch it on Constitution Day. I mean, we've gotten a lot of traction since we originally started pushing that out. So let's try it again. Yeah, um, I could go to... Um what is it? Whitehouse.gov where and put up another petition, and and yeah. but it's got to have fifty thousand signatures. But yeah, I, I guess that could be done. Yeah, we might be able to get fifty thousand signatures, man. Uh, you never know. I think our listeners think that we can get fifty thousand signatures, and not them. And not that I'm expecting the constitutional lawyer, CEO of America, President mm -hmm. Obama, to you know comment on it or put forth any kind of, I don't know he might surprise us I don't know but um you know uh this is purely when I do petitions and stuff I'm looking at it purely not purely but as part of the public education effort you know part of that that uh, strategy to educate the public because again man it was only you know four or five years ago that I came across the 13th amendment and realized that slavery has never been abolished and you know going back to the program that was on air before us tonight tando radio show where they were talking about you know uh public education or public miseducation and you know um how they are training us to be slaves really you know well if you want to of course if you're training people to become slaves or whatnot then of course you don't want want them to know that slavery is legal in this country so you know so yeah man yeah 
<laughs> full plate, man, every single week. Yeah, plate. you know, because I don't even know where to start. Like Scotty said, we've got a few more minutes for our next guest in. There's so many things that have been happening, uh, like the uh, mother recently that turned down the police uh, settlement. As we were asking for recently, just last week, we was talking about that. You know, stop accepting this hush money so these police don't go to prison. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, one of the one of the women's. Uh, let me see if I can find it on our page. While, while you do that, let me go ahead and take um, our caller. We got a caller uh, who wants to chime in. Uh, area code five zero four. Thank you for calling in the New Abolitionist Radio. You're on with Max, myself, and Johanan. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, Max, Scott, and Johanan. Man, look, I'm gonna tell y'all. My name is Bruce. I'm from uh, New Orleans. Uh, I'm hey, just, I, I just started. Yeah, man. How y'all doing? I'm, I'm just started listening to you guys about. Uh, I, I heard. I, I actually stumbled on Scotty, uh, Scotty's radio show on uh on iTunes, and I downloaded it. And but I, I'm gonna just let you know, man. Ever since then, I mean, y'all have really, you know, really opened my eyes. And it's and I wish I could only wish that you guys had the uh, the microphone and and to be able to get out on these main, uh, like XM radio or something like that. So that way, you know, because if more, if, if just half of people heard you guys talk and understand what y'all talking about, and, and actually, and, and I like the way Scotty put stuff down, the way y'all put it down, y'all actually give the information and say, okay, here's where you can go look to get the information. So it's not like you're just saying stuff and, and, and you, you can't back it up. So I, I love that. As far as when y'all talk about the 13th Amendment, Man, that shocked me. I looked. I, I I read that about three weeks ago, and and I and I just read it. I mean, anybody would would come with just just a little bit of common sense to read that and understand that. Man, wow, this it's right there. It's right there. Amen, I want to let you guys. Oh yeah, I, I want to let you guys know, man. I I look. I support y'all 100. Um, percent and I I'm friends with I, I know a couple of y'all guys on Facebook. But I, I just want y'all to know, man, keep doing what y'all doing because, you know, I'm I'm forty one year old guy and and all this time, you know, I've been just you know, you're going around and you you listen, excuse my language, a bunch of house niggas, you listen to them, you you listen to them, and then you you, you realize these what are these guys what are they talking about? You know, they they're not they they saying a lot, they're not saying anything. Right. So what y'all putting out, man, what y'all putting out, man, I love it. Uh I'm always be here to listen, and uh, you know, and however I can help, and I donate also. But however I can help, I want it. I want to help, man. I appreciate what y'all do. Thank you, brother. Thank you. It's good to hear that every now and then. You know what I mean? Because we have Indeed. our dark days. We have our dark days, but we keep going. Uh, we know it's needed, yeah. and uh, there are people listening, and we try to concentrate on those. Who give a damn? You know what I mean? Like right. recently, I right. stopped messing with people who just don't care because I know that yeah. historically speaking, when the original abolitionist movement was at its height, nearly half of the entire country was pro-slavery. So how can I expect yeah. things to be much different now? We're going to come to a dividing uh, pass here, where you're either going to be you're going to be put into an uh, uncomfortable position where you have to choose. Either you're for this prison industry or you're against it. Well, thank you again for chiming in, brother. I mean, that just your words, um, when people acknowledge that what they find value in what we do, 
then that's just more fuel to keep us doing what we do, you know, because everybody likes to have affirmation. You know, it's good for us to, yeah. to get that affirmation. And so thank you for affirming the work that we do. And um, but just thank you, man. And, and welcome to the new abolitionist movement. <laughs> Amen. Right absolutely, man. Y'all, y'all take it easy, man. Love All right. All right. Peace, Peace, brother. Much love, man. All right. Yeah. Let me clear the That's, caller's cue. That is the victory for abolitionists anywhere uh, because it's our Q&A is cleared more than anything else. Once you change your mind, you see everything so much differently. And I remember expressing here before how, to me, it reminded me of that movie, World War Z, where it was like only 12 seconds from one zombie to bite the next zombie and they would change. Well, <laughs> that's how truth works. You know what I mean? Right, In 12 right. seconds, your whole life can change. You're like, oh, my God, I didn't know. And many people find that to be a painful experience, particularly when they're involved knee deep or neck deep in mm -hmm. utter filth. Before <laughs> before we go to our um our uh, break, as we wait on uh, Brother Christopher Irvin to call in, I want to give an example of what you said. You know about the uh, opposition to abolitionism in times past. I was on Twitter, right, and I see uh, a tweet. This woman retweeted a promoted tweet from Verizon. So I tweeted at her. I was like, yeah, they able to offer them good prices because they using prison slave labor, you know. And then right. I included the link to the article, to one of the several articles out there about the industries involved in slave labor. So she never said nothing. Next thing I know, here comes some dude coming at me on Twitter talking about my sister used to work for Twitter and she made a hundred thousand dollars a year working for Twitter. And, and then I was like, I'm like, what the hell does that got to do with prison slavery? Then he started, <laughs> then, then he started getting into the racial stereotypes and talking yeah, about, yeah, yeah, the man holding you down and, and, yeah. you know, just, just being antagonistic and whatnot. And then I was like, you know, why are you being racist? I was, I know this black talk radio because, you know, we a black radio network. But when we talk about slavery, slavery impacts every race demographic in this country, some more than others, but everyone, uh, everyone. I said, we're not talking about ending prison slavery for black people or Hispanic people or Asian people or white. No, we talking about ending slavery point blank, period. period and, yeah. and, and, and so then, and, and so then he was like, I was like, you know, I think I, he said his sister no longer worked for them. I was like, well, I think I found her. And I, I, I tweeted the meme that one of our new abolitionists, you know, the white guy I was talking about last week where he made, he said, orange is the new tech. Uh, uh, what, what, what was that mean? What did it say? Orange is the new tech service. And he showed all these women in their orange jumps, jumpsuits in prison and doing customer service over the phone. I said, I think I found your sister. She's in prison working for slave wages now. So yeah. <laughs> but that wow. that's the type. I mean, even when you hit some people off with that knowledge, you know what I'm saying? It just don't seem to to, to click with them. So I was like, you know what? I'm not going to waste any more time. I didn't spend 10 minutes going back and forth with this dude. And, and he obviously doesn't care about modern slavery. So guess what? I'm just going to block him and move on. It's yeah, a lot of that going on. It's a lot of that going on lately, man. I've, I've had a, a couple of... Uh, posts uh, on my Facebook here lately uh, from other social media, the, the YouTube channel we got, 
uh, Google Plus, Twitter. I mean, just, you know, all around, man. It's just been like these radical people coming in and just throwing out the most asinine, totally baseless, yeah, opinionated, talking point, Rush Limbaugh talking point arguments where they just throw up all of this mess. And it's like there is no responsibility whatsoever to them to have even one fact, to have anything based on any kind of quantifiable science, to have any kind of anything. There's no nothing. It's just a tantrum rant party of black people just want and the white man hold you down and you just mad at weighty and I know a black dude that, that made it and he worked hard and while you were out here complaining and nothing's gonna get better and duh, duh, duh. like where is this job coming from man? where are you going with this we're talking about factual actual science we talk about numbers we talk about figures we talk about laws we talk about historical precedent we're talking about entire states and the society itself, institutions, foundational aspects of our society that are set up and built on slavery. Real. Come man. on, man. Not Get out of here with your feet. Metaphor. And that's the thing that's been pissing me off lately. People keep giving mental slavery or right. weight slavery or debt slavery equal right. status with chattel slavery. Like, these are the slaveries we. No, dude. <laughs> no, whoever you are doing that, just stop, please, because you're demeaning the actual existence and what has right. occurred to us as a people in this nation and globally under slavery. You can quit your job that that's not paying anything. There's a choice. If you even if you're you're like homeless, you can still see the sunshine when you feel like it. Hell, you can sleep in it. But in prison, you can't walk out into the sun when you want. You get beat, you get raped, you get abused, you get exploited, you get worked. All of these things happen without your input. And it's exploitative because they're selling our people on the open market in the form of prison stocks and jail bonds that you can purchase from your home right now, today. So there is a big difference. And you got to stop with these comparisons that you get from white racist supremacists who give you these priorities that are not your priorities. Yeah. But um let let's uh take our um our top of the hour break. We are about six minutes overdue and then welcome in our uh second guest, brother Christopher Irvin, will be joining us on the other side. Indeed. Uh, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio and we get a little bit uh touched sometimes. We'll be right back after these messages. I started the slave ships. There are more records of slave ships than one would dream. It seems inconceivable until you infected for 200 years ship sailing, carrying cargo and slaves. Non-violent. In the face of the violence that we've been uh, experiencing for the past 400 years, is actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. Here come the drums. This is Brother Elliot. First of time for an awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium.
up is our second guest, uh, another wonderful brother out of Baltimore, Maryland, Christopher Irvin, who is an abolitionist, social activist, human rights advocate, and he's uh, been lobbying on behalf of post-sentence prisoners' rights, and he's, uh, I think right now he's running for city council candidate in Baltimore. Um, he was a brother that turned us on to collateral consequences, as a matter of fact, something we hadn't been focused on, but we are focused on now. And it's what happens to uh, many of the people who are finally released from these prisons and have to continue to suffer punishments that last until the day they die, even after they have supposedly served their their sentences in their communities. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio, Brother Christopher. It's Max, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah, we hear Peace, brother. It's, it's my pleasure to be with you, brothers, again. Uh, and sisters out there listening, uh, I'm, I'm always, always humbled to be on your show. Well, we're proud to have you as part of the abolitionist movement, brother, and we're proud of what you, you're doing. I think you're the only dude I ever said should run for president. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Man, that, that means a lot to me just to come from you, brother. Word, man, because you come from, you, you know, you come from a position of understanding, firsthand knowledge, firsthand witnessing, and you're also able to maneuver in this political system to a degree that you feel comfortable enough to go out and talk to these senators and these congressmen and propose legislation. So, yeah, why not? <laughs> you know, you, know what? You know what? Um, as an aside, I don't know, uh, Brother Urban, if you're aware of the movement for one million conscious black voters and contributors. Uh, their website is I am one of the million dot com. But they certainly could benefit from some of your insight in lobbying because they do want to become a lobbying force as well as, you know, in addition to some of the other things that they're doing. So if you have never heard of that organization i would would um um urge you to reach out to them and either they you know incorporate what you have to bring to the table or or not but i think that you know from interviewing you in the past and knowing that you know how the system work in terms of politics and how you go to these senators office and, and you lobby you are you the people's lobbyists and and i think that's needed for any kind of movement that is going to be talking about uh black voting well, Scotty, actually, I was not familiar with that, so I'm I'm hoping that um after the show you'll you'll post that and maybe tag me in it so that um myself and anybody else who wasn't aware of it can um get involved. Yeah, Scotty, if you get the opportunity, please put it on the uh, Facebook page. For yeah, yes, yes, I will. But one of the things um re the main reason I wanted uh brother Christopher Irvin to come on here tonight is because he made a Facebook uh, post and I know he does research, you know, like like a lot of us do in the abolitionist movement. And he had posted a status message. And Chris, you said you were able to find that uh, felony disenfranchisement laws, because that's a major part of the work you do is, you know, post conviction, helping these brothers and sisters, you know, get uh, integrated back into society and pointing out the hindrances to them. That's pro that's prohibiting that and, and being an encumbrance. But you were saying that these felony disenfranchisement laws are older than the 13th Amendment. I am my ears are burning right now to pick up that knowledge from you. Um, well, what what has happened was um, here we go. I'm just pulling some things up. What happened was these laws were put in place prior to the ratification of the 13th Amendment. Um, 
this when we talk about the system and not just being prison, but a system is composed of smaller components working together for a larger goal. So a think of a car engine as a system. Uh, there's all types of systems out here. And the system that we're dealing with as abolitionists is this um, slavery to prison system and the continuum that allowed what was going, what began with slavery to happen through time right up until today to continue that, that original goal of free labor, chattel slavery, and everything that came with it. So we started what, with what was slave code. And then we got to, um, we got to felony disenfranchisement. Then we got our 13th Amendment after felony disenfranchisement. So what felony disenfranchisement is, was a set of laws that were proposed and, adapt, and adopted state after state in succession. If, if your uh, listeners uh, Google it and pull it up, you can even see the dates um, that those laws were adapt, adopted in each state. And felony disenfranchisement laws were very simple and very clear, that once a person was convicted of a felony, that they could be kept from, legally kept from their right to first and foremost possess a firearm. Second was the right to vote. Third was the right to sit on a jury. These three, these three things, um, two of them, the right to possess a firearm and the right to vote, were constitutional rights. The right to sit on a jury is more of an accepted right, those three being the cornerstone rights of being a citizen. And if you recall now and, and keep in context that this was just prior to the, the ratification of the 13th Amendment, it's clear that those rights were to be kept from these soon-to-be uh, freed slaves. So now we're seeing how the system was coming together in the continuum put together to get us into uh, where we are today. So you had slave codes, you had the 13th Amendment, and then slave codes were then turned into black codes peonage, convict leasing, and then collateral consequences. And I'll, I'll, I'll just wrap it up with this. Collateral consequences are those 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 laws on the heels of felony disenfranchisement, uh, felony disenfranchisement essentially being the seed that collateral consequences grew from. Um, as the, the collateral consequences are all of the things now where they keep you from education, they keep you from housing. Again, felony disenfranchisement were the first three things that they were able to keep people from as convicted felons, and then all other things sprung from that under collateral consequences, and it just continued to get worse and worse. Man, our enemy is slick. Uh, from what I'm reading now, the felony disenfranchisement page, which is provided on the sentencingproject.org, they're saying that there's uh, 5.9 million Americans who were denied the right to vote and that one in 13 African-Americans are unable to vote right now. And that number's growing. That's right. And now, now I, I, I always ask, we know that politics is a game. This is one of the biggest games. It's, even, it's, more, it's more intricate than chess. There's all kinds of maneuvering and everything. So when we hear certain things, um, there's a focus on the right to vote, uh, returning the right to vote. We know that two states, Maine and Vermont, um, allow people to vote even while they are incarcerated. While they're in prison, they can still vote. So it's a state's rights issue as to how each state handles the right to vote. But I encourage people to listen beyond um, the, 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 the text that says return the right to vote because it's usually the people who want you to vote for them who will push for the right to vote. 
Um, I, I say, why are you restricting which rights people should get back? If these are rights and not privileges, that is a different also. We should be clear on what the difference is between rights and privileges. You can suspend my driver's license, but you cannot suspend my right to vote. Rights are supposed to be somewhat, if, if, you know, fairly absolute. Yeah, right, rights right are not a privilege. A, that is a God-given right to protect yourself in your home. How is a single parent not able to possess a firearm to protect their child in their home because they were incarcerated at one point? You have to understand that people who face incarceration, usually uh, they, they make a lower income when they come out. So where would they live? In the places that experience higher rates of crime. They should be the primary people who are able to protect them, their children in their home. But that right is, is kept from them due to felony disenfranchisement law. So you have to follow that continuum back to where it came from and say, well, what made them put these laws in place when they didn't exist prior to that? And what were you able to find? I'm sorry? Um, I'm, I'm saying, what were you able to find? Were you able to find, like, any commentary about the arguments that was made, you know, just like, you know, um, we heard the Clintons and and the Reagans and the Nixons tell a whole bunch of lies as to why we needed to, you know, start the war on drugs and lock up all these people. So I'm just interested if there was any rhetoric. What was the, you know, was there similar rhetoric being floated around when these felony uh, disenfranchisement laws were passed? Well, again, um, I, I, I can't point to, and I'm, <laughs> my research is ongoing, I'm digging I'm looking for the arguments, because, you know, as legislation works, you always find arguments for or against any proposed law. Um, I'm looking to dig up some actual uh, conversations and text as to who presented what laws. It it is clear, though, that felony disenfranchisement laws were put in place to restrict the rights, the freedom of access to to society um, to -to soon-to-be freed uh, slaves, Africans in America. And so, uh, again, I think some of the more telling arguments would be around um, the Nixon administration when they wanted to exp- uh, create, not expand, because there was no war on drugs. There was no drug problem at the time. But when they wanted to create a war on drugs under that Nixon administration, I'd like to find some of those arguments for um, expanding the collateral consequences of conviction at that time, which is what got us to where we are now. You know, there's a level of theft involved, too, as well, because Throughout your life as an adult, and if you're employed, you're paying taxes for certain things like Social Security, for instance. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. if you get arrested and receive a felony charge, you lose the right to be able to collect on those things afterwards. So whatever you paid up to that date is just gone. It's just vanished in thin air, which is in somebody else's pocket. Exactly. Um, And you just brought up one of the things I often try to point out to people, that in any state where you cannot vote, um, after you finish parole and probation. Here in Maryland, a bill has been proposed by our uh, delegate, Corey McCray, and I believe it's an accurate bill that proposes the return of voting rights to um, people upon release. Currently, um, you have to complete any and all parole and probation before you can vote, and then that voting right is returned. But his bill, again, is to return the right upon release, and I think it's an, it's it's a totally accurate bill Besides the obvious reasons, but we have to, what we have to remember is that people are allowed to work, regardless of the fact that their um, employability is kept um, off, off into lower wage and, and, you know, kind of dead-end jobs. The fact is that they are allowed to work, 
and therefore they are, they are allowed to be taxed. And if they can be taxed, they should be able to choose their representation because otherwise we have the same situation that, that, that exists in Washington, D.C., where there is taxation without representation. We should be able to choose our representation and have, uh, you know, be able to participate in that process if we're able to be taxed as citizens. That's one thing that I'm, and, and I understand that people kind of want to give the Heisman Trophy stiff arm to that whole conversation of citizenship. I completely understand that. My position is, though, if we are going to claim what is ours rightfully, as in our voting right, our Second Amendment right, our right to sit on a jury, to a degree we have to embrace citizenship because that is what protects those rights, is citizenship. So it's, it almost works to our detriment when we stiff on citizenship, then people are able, you know, people just being that system is able to say, well, if you, you don't want to be a citizen, why should you have these rights? Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I completely under understand um what you're saying, but I also understand where where they coming from. But you know, I will do what's convenient when it benefits and suits me to to claim citizenship in this corporation. I will do go. that. You know, pen, exactly. Pending. That, that's what I mean. Yeah. I, I don't I don't mean to impose. You know, but again, I understand where people are coming from with that. I, I'm just talking about achieving that larger goal of, you know, the return of rights and status right, right, of right. people who are currently held in a, in a uh, essentially a status of slavery. Yeah, I, and I mean, I go out and I vote and, and whatnot, even though I know, you know, that um, this country sits on stolen land and is pretty much illegitimate. It's not even a constitutional republic anymore. It, it's a corporation. It was incorporated sometime in the 1800s uh, based on some research somebody had shared with me. I knew it was a corporation. I just didn't know exactly when they incorporated. So when we hear people on the right wing talk about this is a constitutional republic and all this, well, no, it's not. It, it's a corporation. And that might have, right. yeah, it, that, that might play into why, you know, they're being so arbitrary with, you know, recognizing rights. That's right. And, and you, what you just hit on, that it's a corporation. I've said a lot of times, we, we follow the, um, one thing about America, we, we have become good with the stories, um, the fables, the stories, the things, you know, Christopher uh, Columbus discovered America and all of the things that move people emotionally. Uh, when it benefits the country, and that makes people feel as if America was a moral endeavor, um, people escaping their oppression to come here and start new and pull themselves up by their bootstraps is the famous um, term that's always used. And my contention is that America was not a moral endeavor. America was a business endeavor. Mm -hmm. um, people were looking to conquer new areas and get free labor, labor to do it, and there was um, collusion between the countries that were in power at the time, the European countries. And so when we look at it from that angle, America being a business endeavor, that it, it actually helps to put the 13th Amendment into context because of the war that that, that uh, uh, was about to divide what was soon to be a new country. There was a business concession in that 13th Amendment, which allowed the North and the South to still operate as they wanted to, but to just kind of calm the troubles at the time. That business concession uh, led to, you know, it, it was all within that system, there were all of the components in place that continued the system. It changed slavery because we know that slavery 
the abolishment of slavery had begun around the world already. It was inevitable that slavery had to end here. So there had to be a method to continue it without it looking the same way, smelling the same way. Controlled demolition. That's what I, I've been saying, too, that uh, even now they see it falling again and they're making preparations for its controlled fall. Uh, it's reached a peak at this moment, and too many people are aware of what's being done. So mm -hmm. reform and the reform that is being presented from many different political arenas literally is our exception clause being put into place. Okay, we're going to give you these concessions, but we're not really going to change too much in this uh, system. Like the uh, way the prison numbers, the number of people who are in state and federal prisons have not really increased, but the jails are growing exponentially. They're just building new jails left and right everywhere. So they're moving from arresting so many people, putting them in the prisons or sending them through the courts to the prisons and putting them into jails for shorter times. So everybody gets to spend a year or two. Right. I, I would hope that your listeners are um, aware of the changes that are happening. And, it, and it's, the irony is that even while I'm speaking with you brothers right now, the movie is on is on a TV, Kill the Messenger, uh, which is which describes the beginnings of this war on drugs. You know, we we always talk about um, some of the the, the conversation is 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 um, derailed with some of the violence in our communities without actually challenging how these drugs and guns are getting into the community. They, they actually got to, that um, on TV, bro. I was like shocked. I'm shocked to hear that they actually got it on corporate television. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a whole different conversation that could take place about what is you know there's there's a lot going on you know there's people who are trying to tell the truth there are people who are trying to make the truth vague and you know kind of throwing a smoke bomb in the room and so we have to try and filter out what's real and what's not but at, at the heart of it all is this abolition um, abolitionist movement and the facts speak speak for themselves. We really need to educate ourselves on what's happening because even as we see and hear people speaking about reform, there are um, entities in place um, and entities out here that are working to change the, the, the private prison industry. And in a state like Maryland, where it's not so much a private prison industry, but um, it used to be called state use industries, and it's the state prisons making and profiting off of so many things from the same free labor, making the license plates, making all of the um, desks and cubicles and everything that go into state offices and buildings, and, and they, you know, profiting in millions. So, so it 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 is in different forms. And now they're seeking to go into that uh, the rehabilitation, the monitoring. And, and so it's shifting, it's shape shifting again. Yeah, so but but still the profit component. Looking to move the profit into different areas. Right. I was just about to say that because you know often, and I picked up this saying from Max. You know, we we don't want you can't reform slavery. You have to abolish slavery. And so mm -hmm. when I hear, you know, the Senate, I think it's the Judiciary Committee is is about. I was reading an article yesterday. The Senate Judiciary Committee, which is chaired by Charles Grassley, I think he's out of Iowa or somewhere like that. One, one mm -hmm. of the, one of them, you know, Midwestern states, and and so they're supposed to come out with their reform of. Uh, proposals or legislation sometime this month um and then bernie sanders is supposed to introduce his legislation to abolish 
uh, private prisons in this country. But the whole, I keep telling people, stop falling for that reform. What pre- mm-hmm. When President Obama talk about it's wrong to send people, you know, to prison for life, for crack cocaine, for, you know, a, little, a gram of cocaine, 25 years or something like that. And then when they say, well, you know, we're going to reduce that to five years, I'm saying, hell, no years. I, I ain't interested in, in reforming, you know, the sentencing, these, the, the drug laws need to be repealed. These people right. need help if they want help, okay? And, and that's where you should be putting the money and, and not, don't tell me that you are really reforming something when all you doing, all you doing is just reducing the amount of time somebody's gonna be in slavery. You know what I'm saying? So I don't want nobody in slavery for no period of time. For non-violent, yes. victimless crime, so-called crimes. There's, there's two things I have with that. Um, recently, I was at a conference in Denver, Colorado, where marijuana is now legal for consumption. And, you know, they're, they're, they're making a lot of their money. The state is through taxes. I think they, they tax it something like 24%. And they've made so much money now, they're actually going to return money to the people. The people of the state of Colorado are going to uh, get a direct benefit from this, but wow. the, the transpose, the transpose, um, the legal selling of marijuana now with the, the 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 criminalization of the selling of marijuana that still goes on around the country and all and did even prior to the legalization of it in that particular state. And the thought that what 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 a lot of people don't know is if you have a conviction for selling marijuana, you cannot participate in the marijuana industry at large. As it's legally accepted. And so here right. in Maryland, in Anne Arundel County now, they're looking at legislation to explore uh, the legal growing of marijuana. It is a strange thing, but my thing, again, is we have to know these things. Again, that's more felony disenfranchisement. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's up to each individual, and I respect how people feel about it. But again, if, if somebody's punching you in the mouth consistently, you there's not a whole lot of talking involved. You either hit back or get out the ring. And because I'm here, I'm going to find a way to hit back. So I need to know, you know, we, I, I also encourage people as much as we need to know who's running for president. What's more important is to know who is in the legislature in your state, who is in that house and that Senate, because they are the ones that, that are proposing bills and putting law in place. And every state has different, has different laws at the federal level. That's a different system. And we are more impacted by state laws. If we don't get involved, the people who have interest get to control what's going on in your state. You know, what you said was pretty powerful, too, uh, just in a basic sense of it all, that out in Colorado, they're considering, and I had read the story, too, considering giving money back to the taxpayers now because they've made so much. In the Mm -hmm. meantime, just last week, our uh, 21st century rider of the Underground Railroad was Jeff Mizanesky, who had been in prison for 20 years for mm-hmm. marijuana. And mm-hmm. there are a number of people right now doing life in prison for marijuana. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, anybody in prison, if you can legally sell marijuana in any state, and there's a number of states, not just Colorado, a number of states, Oregon, uh, in Alaska just legalized it, then how can you still have people in prison for using it? 
And, and it, it, mm-hmm. if this is the united emphasis on United States of America, how can you put keep people in prison in one part of the country, but then in this part of the country, oh, it's all well and fine. But then I, I, when you just share that information, that if you've been convicted of selling uh, marijuana, before they legalized it in Colorado, that you can't never enter into uh, uh, selling it legally now. That's by design to keep people of color out of that, out of that venture. Because right. when I see all the articles in the videos of them uh, stacking all that cash, cause right now they can't put it in the bank, so you know they they stacking all this cash and keeping it wherever they keeping it and whatnot. It's all white men that I'm seeing stacking all mm-hmm. this cash. Yeah, and, and so again, that just goes back to what we originally brought you on the program to talk about. Felony right. disenfranchisement. Yeah, in this in last year, twenty fourteen, we still see them growing their prison population with marijuana users because half of all drug related arrests were over marijuana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like, and again, it's, it's, hey, uh, it's a constant. I think we need a quick break. That's what the music means. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back with the servant after this. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Sorry about the interruption there, uh, Christopher, for what you were saying. Oh, no problem. Um, well, actually, I, I, as I'm sitting here, I'm just thinking. I just encourage people to to research, get involved, do research, read, Google, uh, query, any way that you can, um, and be open to the fact that the more you dig and the more you find, the more things might look a little differently. So don't be so um, kind of dog on a bone with one particular fact or another because this is a system. And things have been hidden um, intentionally, as has always been said. If you want to hide certain things from certain people, you hide it in a book. But you can also hide it in language, which is why um, attorneys are so prevalent in, in shaping a lot of what we deal with. So many um, congressmen and senators and delegates and, and so forth are attorneys because when legislation is passed, it is written in the, in the legislative language. Uh, so, so many times we hear it's, it's the language of the law or the letter of the law. Um, it's actually the language of the law and, and, and the way things are phrased is a visible way of hiding things from us. So do research. We, we, we can't stand back and be who we've been classically where we just, you know, we get mad, we talk about it over the table, dig into it because they will continue. And I say they mean this system. That has operated the same way. This 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 changes shape. It shifts form 
from now and then, but we have to be mm-hmm. uh, diligent in digging into this you, and being engaged in this system. You know, I saw a meme today on, on Facebook about maybe two or three hours ago, and they had a picture of Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln. And then they were they put some quote that I can't even remember right now. But the whole purpose, the intent of the meme that they shared was to compare uh, to say that these presidential candidates that's debating tonight are not men of character. And so they were comparing, I guess, you know, Donald Trump and all the others to Lincoln. And I, you know me, I can't resist. I got to post something. And I'm like, if you think that Lincoln is a man of moral character, then you obviously hasn't, haven't read anything he wrote about African descendant people, that the man was a racist and he was a lawyer. And like you Absolutely. just, like you just said, most of the people in Congress hiding stuff in the language of this legislation were lawyers. It, it isn't, it, it, there's no surprise that Lincoln's number one profession, his, his main profession was a lawyer and he certainly used that lawyerly language when they constructed the 13th amendment to hide the fact that slavery was, ne- they're not really abolishing slavery. We're just changing the parameters. And that's exactly why earlier I mentioned uh, that, again, the 13th Amendment, with its exception, uh, was a business concession in order to continue the enterprise that was America in the path that they had it on. You know what somebody said to me? Um, uh, Brother Brown, I can't remember Brother Brown's first name. I just met him a couple of weeks ago. But he sometimes sits in for the program that comes on after us, um, Lotus Place Radio. They come on at 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. But he he said something that really clicked with me, um, and and then he talked about how we were taught that the Reconstruction period, we believed that that was to help black people get power and to, you know, bring them into citizenship. But really what it was about was reconstructing white supremacy after the Civil War. And then mm-hmm. the context of white supremacy has been doing a book study. I, they might be finished with it by now. I listened to it on archives. That's one of our media partners here on Black Talk Radio Network. They've been reading the book, Benjamin Tillman. The Reconstruction of White Supremacy. Benjamin Tillman was a South Carolina state senator, later a U.S. senator. Uh, he was also a racist white terrorist and, and from down in that area in Charleston. They got monuments to Benjamin Tillman. And then that's when it clicked again. And I was like, you, you're so right. It wasn't about about making citizenship and, and pathways to citizenship and integrating the emancipated enslaved African into American society. No, it was about reconstructing the South. Well, what did, how were they going to reconstruct the South if you didn't let all the, the enslaved Africans go? Well, damn, that's why you got that 13th Amendment. I told you now you can pass them black codes and you can re- you can arrest them and put them in prison. And then we can hire them right back out to the plantations and, and other industries that's using prison slave labor. Damn. If, if I could, if, if you think about um, the, the prevalence uh, within this war on drugs for someone who has just turned 18, the process. So uh, someone who's just turned 18, no matter, you know, whatever they have, whatever small amount of it, but the police officer telling them it's just copy this and you can go home. And, and, and what often happens is it's written up as a felony, of course, and you never see that 
downgraded by a state's attorney or district attorney to a misdemeanor because once they have that felony, mm -hmm. you see what I mean? This is a part yeah. of the continuum in how we got here and what it looks like in modern-day America. So felony disenfranchisement, felony disenfranchisement is the mm -hmm. biggest monster. Um, and again, you know uh, that I'm with you, brothers, 100% on the 13th Amendment and its exception. I'm, I'm just now just starting to look in a broader context and how, again, what keeps this whole engine moving this vehicle down the road, how the battery works with the alternator to work with the pistons. Right. It's all, not just know. the 13th Amendment. There are other things in place, like Huckabee just recently pointed out that we're still considered three-fifths of a human. Like the right. Scott is still but, law. But the 13th Amendment is definitely the linchpin um, that exception is definitely the linchpin in this system. Amen to that, brother. Um, Scotty? Well, I know that if we don't pay attention, as you're pointing out, that we should pay attention. Because when I, when I research, as you do, for me, it's like the armor of God. Now, I'm not trying to get all religious on you, but I do feel... Uh, more protected because I know more. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, can't get past me with certain things anymore. Where there was a time where I was completely susceptible and controlled by things that I didn't know anything about. Mm -hmm. And uh, the more I learn, the stronger that shield, that protection that I have around me comes into play. That's right. I, and I agree. I was the same way. You know, um, I, 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 knowledge is power. That was the simplest. But truest statement, I, I think, for me, of all time. And the more we, you know, it's, again, we can have strong, passionate um, opinions, and we can argue all day long. But if we don't do so from an educated aspect, it, it, it really, it, it just gains no ground. To fight back against the system, we have to be able to decipher it, and you can only do that through knowledge and understanding. Only through knowledge and understanding. Well, there's going to be a lot of people out there, just like there were in the 1800s, who are not going to have full knowledge and understanding. And we expect that. Not everybody is going to be in the forefront being able to lead. They're going mm -hmm. to follow their passions, just like the uh, people on the other side will do. They will follow their passions to the point where you, as Scotty points out, so often we may end up with blood in the streets and two sides of a country. That's right. That's right. I wish we could educate everybody, but I do remember that 5% of the nation were professed abolitionists. And just us four right uh, uh, that have been on air tonight represent a very large segment of the American popula population right now who consider themselves abolitionists. And that's really all you need is just enough people giving you enough information to be able to act accordingly. It's better than being fooled, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I'm working on now is for people who have been, um, you know, a part of this system of slavery, if they have been incarcerated in states like Maryland where they do uh, return the right to vote at whatever point, people need to understand that there is a possibility. What that possibility is is up to each and every individual, but there's a possibility for them. Um, we look at different movements, um, different classifications of people who have been marginalized and intentionally kept away from society. However you feel about them is not the point, uh, whether it's the gay, the, the LGBTQ movement or immigration movement. Um, mm -hmm. Look at them 
look at them almost as a science, as a science experiment. Both people, what do we have in common with them? Both groups of people uh, were marginalized by the system. Both groups of people, um, because of that marginalization, they made themselves comfortable in being marginalized and stuck to the shadows. And people who were able to make it, whether in the workplace and in, in, in the academic environment, they kind of kept the, their status to themselves. They kept their heads down in order to be able to just, you know, keep being um, successful. They didn't want anyone to know their past or their situation. And so when they realized their numbers, in each of those movements, when they realized their numbers, they decided that they had political power in order to affect their overall situation. And they came out in a united fashion. The immigration wow. movement in particular, I remember when, when they had a, a one day they had a planned movement and the national media had a split screen and split four ways. And they were marching all at the same time, I believe it was Miami, New York, L.A. and somewhere else. And you saw millions of people told out in the streets. And now let's look in 2015, what does the landscape look like for those two uh, groups of people? We're seeing progress uh, that was never thought to be possible and happening at a more rapid rate than anybody thought was possible. You have gay marriage happening across the country. You have a pathway to citizenship being discussed for immigration. And again, this is not about how individuals feel about those two things. That's, that's, a, that's a personal issue. I'm talking about the ability of groups of people to recognize their ability to affect their own condition. It's a simple thing to do, as simple as changing your mind. Just recognize your ability to change your own conditions. And it starts with the conditions of your thoughts. You have to change your mind about what it is you're dealing with and act accordingly. That's right. So there's a statement that was uh, said by uh, Frederick Douglass, and I want to share it with you and the listeners. He mm -hmm. says that they would, call it, they would not call it slavery, but some other name. Slavery has been fruitful in giving ourselves names, and it will call itself by yet another name, and you and I and all of us had better wait and see what new form this old monster will assume, and what new skin this old snake will come forth. We're looking at it today as being described in detail right here on New Abolitionist Radio. And it's not going to go away anytime soon. No time soon. We've got to kill this thing with a real head wound. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity to talk about uh, the um, race that you're in. And you are in race, right? Am I mistaken? Yes, I am. I'm, yes. I'm running for the 5th District uh, Baltimore City Council seat. Um, the <laughs> incumbent has been in the seat since 1977. She is, in fact, the longest-serving uh elected official in the history of the state of Maryland. In the district that I live in, um, it is it, it, it does not include, but it is near the area that is um, known nationally now for the Freddie Gray, uh, the death of Freddie Gray. Um, not far from there is where I live, and there is an obvious difference in, in, in this district in how a, part, a portion of the district is um, treated or responded to versus the larger uh, portion of the district. Um, there's, there's lacking educational resources. There's lack of uh, job resources. Unemployment is high. 
there's little to no investment by the city, by the administrations over time in this area. But again, you can go in some parts of the district. You can go in some parts of the city and see phenomenal progress. And so I think um, what I would bring to the seat is the ability to speak to the condition of these former slaves. Because we are still talking about freeing slaves. We're talking about people who have experienced incarceration and experience it after they've been released. After they completed, it's still stuck in it. Does your district use the uh, Baltimore County Jail as well, the main jail? Uh, what about it? Does your district uh, also send their people to the Baltimore County Jail? Uh, no, well, you, you mean the Baltimore City Jail. Yeah, Bar um, Baltimore City and the, the reason I distinguish that is because there is a Baltimore County outside of Baltimore City. Well, I'm so talking Baltimore about the Baltimore old... City Jail. I'm sorry? The old one. Yeah, Baltimore City Jail is the one that's closed. It's not in this district, but that is where people arrested in this district would ultimately go if they uh, got sentenced to it. We were just talking about them recently, how they have at any given moment four or 5,000 people waiting on uh, trials in their jails, and they process like 74,000 people annually. Amazing numbers. Primarily Next. nine out of ten of them are black people. Nine out of ten. Max, you could do a whole show just on the prison um, industrial complex and what it looks like in Baltimore City alone. Amen. Um, the, number of the number of jails and, and, and facilities concentrated in a predominantly black section of this very urban area, um, from a pre-release to a maximum security to a medium security to a minimum security, um, a couple of enclosed, a women's prison, um, a women's pre-release unit that was the only pre-release unit for women, which, uh, as you may or may not know, is the, is the, is the vehicle for women to find um, employment and housing when they're seeking to, um, uh, you know, circulate back into to society. Without a pre-release for women, how are they supposed to transition from prison to, to society? It's basically a, you're done now, get out. So, uh, yeah, you could, you could literally do a whole show. This is why you have things like The Wire and, and all these different movies and things that talk about Baltimore, particularly Baltimore is a, is, yeah, you, you could do a whole show on just the prison industrial complex in Baltimore, which is a state industrial complex, but it is a complex. I just want to point out to our listeners too that, uh, listen to our regular segments like our 21st Century Underground, Rider of the Underground Railroad and our Ferguson is America series that we'll very likely be skipping those this evening. Uh, we had two special guests, and we really wanted to enjoy our time with them and be able to speak with them in detail. We can do these segments again next week, so please tune in next week, and you'll hear Mississippi is Ferguson and our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. We will post on the new abolitionist page and then have another one next week. Uh, tell us some more about uh, how we can support and how the listeners can support, particularly in Baltimore, and you getting into this position of office. Uh, and uh, if you have any websites that you want to point them to, please tell us about it. Uh, my face, they can find me on Facebook. Uh, my name is Christopher Irvin, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R, -E last name E-R-V as in Victor, E-R-V-I-N. Um, that's my Facebook uh, page under my name. I have several pages, as you know, but that's the main one. Um, the thing about politics, of course, a political campaign runs on finances. Um, I, I, I really, I'm going to do that to the minimum of my ability. And what I mean by that is, you know, yes, you, you have to raise some money 
But like the the current president did, I would really want it to be about the people and the grassroots movement. Otherwise, uh, otherwise I run the risk of becoming the people that I can't stand. Uh, you see what I'm saying? So it's really about um, getting out, talking to people, getting let, uh, allowing them to know who I am and what I stand for, and them seeing me. They're going to see me. A lot of them already know me because I've all, you know, I've always been out there. But uh, that's the main thing. There'll be a, a, a trend of Christopher Urban page, but feel free to contact me on Facebook. Shoot me a friend request. Um, I'm on Twitter at cease, just like ceasefire, C-E-A-S-E. E ninety nine at cease ninety nine, um, and the same on Instagram. Well, I'm I hoping to, to get you the new abolitionist push tonight. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that, brothers. I'm telling you, this kind of thing for me. Elected office is supposed to be the next step of advocacy. Okay, right. so my problem is when I see people who who jump up as, as a personal opportunity, I say, well, wait a minute, where was your advocacy before this personal opportunity? What were you doing for the people before now that you think will be enhanced by you being in elected position? And that's what we fall for too often. The popularity thing. Who, who name you saw the most or who you saw, but did you see them before there was an election? Mm. And will you see them after there's an election? We have to stop falling for this stuff. We need to be a little more politically savvy. We need to be a little more invested in our own condition. So I'm going to do my best with this going. Like I said, at the end of it all, it, it, it means more to me that people like yourselves um, who do this thing because it is your mission. It is not just a, a position. It's not a job thing. It is your mission, and that's why I do it. So, um, again, elected office would just be the next step of my advocacy, which is not going to stop, <laughs> win, lose, or draw. You know, um, I'm anti-political, as you know, when everybody that listens knows. But at yes, the same time, I've also shown that I'm willing to work with anybody and anything that's going to help us end slavery in America. We don't even have to have the same uh, objectives in mind. We don't need to be doing it for the same reason. As long as we're getting it done, we can cross any kind of border. So I will support a, a brother that's good in heart and in motive like yourself and trying to make a change in his community by taking these positions from people who sat there and watched all these things occur for the past 30 years. You know, so yeah, why not? You know, I I would like to take this opportunity, not even about myself, but there's another brother, much like much like you brothers. Um, he's experienced incarceration, and he is dug into his community in Detroit. When I say dug in, I mean he is in there, doing the work on the ground to reach these young um, brothers and sisters out there in Detroit. And his name is Yusef Bunchy Shakur. Uh, if he if he's listening, I, I hope so. But this is a brother who has been doing it. I've been watching him on Facebook, and uh, we met a couple of times. And he's running for, or he's exploring a run for city council in, I believe, 2017. I, I, I really encourage people to understand how, you know, there's another there's another brother who who's been doing this work, Glenn Martin. He he is saying, and I like to credit him for for saying this because I, I use it since I heard it from him. The people closest to the problem are, are the ones who are usually closest to the solution. Mm. And so if um, you've been through these things and you come back and, and you decide that because a lot of times it's the people who've been through who want to give back the most and are held off, you know, for that reason, get involved. You can run for office. In some states you can't depending on what the charge was or whatever, but if you can, 
and, and you are, are, are so inclined to want to give back, get involved at the highest extent because we know how these policies affect people, um, affect families and communities. Amen, man. Get involved. Uh, Brother Scotty, Brother Johanna, any last questions? And then we're going to do our final comments. Um, no, we only got a few minutes. We got to transition to the Lotus Place. But I, I want to thank um, um, our first guest. And I'm trying not to butcher his name. So that's why I got to <laughs> practice his name. But Muhaddin. Say that again. Muhaddin. Muhaddin. Yeah, I want to thank him for coming on, um, and he was bringing some fire, and of course, Christopher Irvin always bringing the fire and enlightenment, and I just want to thank both of you brothers and the listening audience and the callers who uh, called in um, for just being who you are and doing what you do, because, you know, this stuff, this um all the things we identify as being wrong in our society, it's not going to fix itself. Okay, and so it's go. It, it takes hands, it takes feet, it takes people to make these changes. And so I want to commend you, brother Christopher Irvin, for taking that next step and seeking elective offices office to you know be there as an advocate, as you say, for the people in that district you live in. And anything I can do to help, like social media consultation with your campaign or anything, you know, just don't hesitate to reach out, man. Our resources are your resources. I appreciate that. Just with a couple seconds, I, I'd like to say just just one thing in particular, man. Um, I, I'm I, I'm beyond um, humbled, like I said, and honored. And what I would ask you and Max and, and Johanna and everybody who's involved with you to do is to keep following what I'm doing, not to follow me, but to hold me to everything that I'm saying to you from 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 when we first met going forward. All right, that, that kind of engagement. You know, we, we try to vote for people sometimes. So people do vote, we vote, and then we stand back and watch. Hold me to it. Um, like I said, run. Make sure I know who's running so I can support. It's that kind of engagement. Again, not to be, um, not to give in and become a part of something, but because we need to control our environment. And, and, and you are, I mean, I'm beyond humble, man. Every time. I speak to you guys or you guys reach out and want me to come on the show because it, it like you said earlier, that is the validation I see. You are my kid. Peace, brother. Indeed. Right on, right on. Thanks for being a part of New Abolitionist Radio, and uh, we'll have you back again very soon. Yes, sir. And we'll hold you to that. Peace, brother. Peace, man. Johanan, uh, Scotty, any last words? In these no, last those were my words? final comments. Um, Johanan? I just comment on uh, the the fact that uh, Brother Christopher is running for you know city council seat, uh, and, and as he mentioned, you know the politics in his city, and he mentioned the brother that's in Detroit, and, and looking at that you know opportunity up there, uh, and a, a post and, and some commentary that I uh, engaged in just the other day on my own Facebook page talking about uh, all of the uh, black caucus, uh, congressional black caucus members that already sold out to Hillary Clinton. So your political power is already gone, black voters. The people that are already representing you in in Congress, the black folks that's already representing you in Congress, already gave up without even demanding anything from her. This happened back uh, like in April. They all joined up with her a long time ago, and now they were talking about how Bernie Sanders had a meeting with them, and only like five or six of them even cared to show up. A few of them very flippantly joked and talked about how they forgot about it or had something else to do. And, you know, I mean, this is the the, the depth of the maturity of these people that are representing 
so supposedly your political interest in the highest offices in the land. So I really uh, admire the brother and understand when people say we got to fix it locally, you know, and kind of go up from there. But look up top, you know, we already don't have any demands that we can we can carry to Hillary Clinton should she advance to be the Democratic candidate because black the black folks that's in office already just sold out. You can't even carry a demand to her. So we need to be aware of what's going on. Peace to the abolitions, death to the oppressors. Well, I just want to say that our regular segments of our Rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad and our abolitionists in profile are posted on the new abolitionist page. I'd also like to say that we need abolitionists to come to Charleston, South Carolina on Saturday at 11 a.m. and be a part of the PBS broadcasting of that town hall meeting. We need you in the audience with signs or whatever you got to have to put this on the table so it's being seen on a national level even more and more and more. So come on down and join us on that. And finally, I guess I'll just say it like this. Abolition is a reason for a revolution, y'all. So we can finally know some peace. 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 We do whatever we do to survive. Drop it.